You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner in English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 317, 317 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Education for Special Needs, The Curative Education Course, 12 Lectures, translated by Anna Moise. This is Lecture 1, given in Dornach on the 25th of June, 1924. Well now, my friends, we have quite a number of children whose development has not been complete and who need to be educated and as far as possible cured. Some of these children are here in the Institute of Clinical Medicine, and some are with you at the Lauenstein Center. We'll organize our subject matter so that as far as possible it relates directly to practical application. And with Dr. Wegman making the children who are here available for demonstration, which it will be permissible to do amongst ourselves, we will be able to consider some cases that will be right in front of our eyes. Today I want to begin by considering the nature of such children. Anyone wishing to work with children who are not fully developed naturally must first gain insight, genuine and penetrating insight, into the methods used to educate healthy children. Everyone intending to work with these children would need to know this, for we must be quite clear in our minds that anything that may come up with children whose development has not been complete, children with special needs, is also subtly evident in an inner life that is said to be, in quotes, normal. One must merely be able to observe that normal inner life accordingly. One might say that every one of us has an anomaly somewhere in some corner of his or her inner life. Merely a minor flight of ideas or an inability to produce words at the right pace when speaking, so that the words either trip over themselves or the listener can take a walk between two words which the speaker is producing or other irregularities of that kind that may also show themselves in the life of will and life of feeling. We note them, at least to a small degree, in the great majority of people. We shall have to say a few things later on about such irregularities, for they must be taken as symptoms by anyone who wants to pay attention, as a teacher or medically, to those irregularities, especially if they are major ones. We must be able to make studies of the symptoms, just as physicians speak of symptoms in cases of sickness that allow them to identify the disease, perhaps also referring to a syndrome that gives an overview of the illness, though they will never confuse the nature of a syndrome with the actual substance of the disease. In the same way, we should not take anything we observe in the inner life of a child who has not developed fully to be anything but symptoms. Psychographics, as it is called, is really nothing but a symptomatology. And when psychiatrists do nothing today but describe the anomalous mental phenomena that come under the headings of thinking, feeling, and doing, this does not mean much beyond the fact that progress has been made in psychiatry 
in giving exact descriptions of syndromes. However, being unable to go beyond such psychographics, psychiatry does not permit one to penetrate into the substance of the diseases. We must enter into the substantial aspect of illness. The following will be useful to you in this respect, and I'd ask you to keep it in mind. Imagine that here, see plate one, center, we have the human physical body as it presents itself to us as a young child is growing. We then have the inner life ascending from this physical human body, as it were, issuing from it. This inner life, which may indeed present as reflections of the child's soul, may be normal or abnormal. Essentially, we do not really have the right to talk about normality or abnormality in a child's inner life, nor indeed in the inner life of human beings altogether, unless we look at everything that is, in average terms, normal. For a community devoted to the commonplace, the only accepted criterion is that anything which is normal is average. And when this community considers something to be sensible or clever, everything which, in the eyes of these stolid citizens, is not a normal inner life will be considered abnormal. Initially, there is no other criterion. This is why opinions are so extraordinarily confusing. If people then start to do all kinds of things, having established abnormality, thinking that they will help, but they are driving out a piece of genius instead. One altogether does not gain much from such labeling. And the first thing to happen should be that the physician or the teacher rejects such an assessment and goes further than saying that something is clever or sensible according to the way people are habitually thinking. It is particularly in this field that there is most eminent need not to form an opinion, but to look at things cleanly. For what, in fact, do we have there in human beings? Leaving aside this inner life, which emerges only gradually anyway, with the dubious teachers sometimes playing a part in it, we have another principle of spirit and soul here, behind the bodily aspect. This principle of spirit and soul comes down from spiritual worlds between conception and birth. That other inner life is not the soul life which does come down from the worlds of spirit and soul. It is something else, something which initially is not outwardly apparent to earthly minds. Let me draw it for you. See plate one, yellow. The whole of this descended soul life here takes hold of the body, a body built up according to inherited principles in successive generations. So if this soul life is such that it produces a diseased liver, if it takes hold of the liver substance, or if it finds inherited pathological elements, in the physical and ether body, and this gives rise to sentience of illness, we do indeed have a case of illness. Any other organ or organ complex can also be wrongly involved in the principle which descends from the soul and spirit cosmos. It is only when you have this connection here, a connection between descended and inherited principles, once this soul and bodily aspect has developed, 
that you will have, though largely just as a mirror image, the inner life that human beings have, usually observed as thinking, feeling, and doing. Uh, See the plate, the purple in the plate. This thinking, feeling, and doing altogether exists only like mirror images, literally like mirror images, which are extinguished when we go to sleep. The soul life, which is actually permanent, is behind this. It descends, it goes through repeated lives on earth and sits within the organization of the body. How does it sit in there? Let us first of all consider the human being in his threefold nature, nervous system, rhythmic system, and the system of limbs and metabolism. You see, the neurosensory system, if we think it, I think we understand one another, thinking of the way in which it is mainly, but only schematically so, located in the head. We speak of the head system when referring to the neurosensory system. We can do so all the more in the case of a child, since the part which develops the neurosensory system comes from the head and acts into the whole organism. This system, this neurosensory system, is localized in the head. It is a synthetic system. It synthesizes. What do I mean by this? It brings together all the organism's activities or functions. You see, in a way, the head has the whole human being in it. When we speak of liver function, and we should really speak only of liver function, the liver which I see is liver process that has set. This liver function is, of course, entirely within the lower body but there is always a function in the head to correspond to any such functional situation. To make a diagram, see plate 1 on the right. It is like this. Here, let us say, is the liver function. And there is some activity or other in the human head or brain which corresponds to this liver function. Here, in the abdomen, the liver is relatively segregated from the other organs, from the kidneys, stomach, and so on. In the brain, everything blends together. Liver function blends with the other functions, so that the head is the great summer-up of everything that goes on in the organism. This synthesizing activity brings about a destructive process. The substantial aspect drops out. Exactly as we have a synthesizing process in the head, so we have an analytical process in all the rest of the organism, especially in the system of metabolism and limbs. There everything is kept apart. In contradistinction to the head, everything is kept apart. In the head, renal function and intestinal function go together. In the rest of the organism, everything is kept apart. To continue with our diagram, we may thus say that liver function, let us say gastric function, are segregated here. In the head they merge into one another. It all flows together. Everything is synthesized. This merging process, with substance dropping out at the same time as if it were raining, is a synthesizing process in the head which essentially is the basis of all thinking activity. To enable human beings to think, to enable them to go outside and be active, the principle which comes from the sphere of spirit and soul must maintain the synthesizing function toward the head. And with this 
differentiate the substance of anything inherited, doing so by synthesis. As a result, the differentiated, inherited elements can be seen as a mirror. So, you now have the following. When it happens in the head that on coming down the principle is organized synthetically, the head becomes a mirror, and the outside world is reflected in it, which results in the thinking we usually observe. We must therefore distinguish between the two thinking functions, the one that lies behind the observable world and builds up the brain, that is the lasting one, and the thinking function which is not anything real, but is merely reflected and always extinguished when we go to sleep. It is lost unless we reflect on it. Another part of the principle which descends from the sphere of spirit and soul analytically builds up the system of metabolism and limbs, builds up the organs which are segregated, having clearly distinguishable individual contours. So if you consider the whole body with its distinct individual contours, we have liver, lung, heart, and so on in there, and the system of limbs and metabolism is also connected with them. The rhythmic system is not visible to us. Everything filled out with physical matter belongs to the system of metabolism and limbs, and that includes the visible parts of the brain. They too are metabolism. The principle represented by these organs, individually and analytically developed, underlies the whole of human life in the will, whereas synthetic activity is behind our thinking. Everything we have by way of organs is behind life in the will. Let us now consider the following. Think of someone who is pretty well grown up. What has happened to this fairly adult individual as he went through life on earth? Let us say he reached the age of seven and developed his second dentition, at fourteen he reached sexual maturity. At twenty-one he achieved consolidation of life in the psyche. If we altogether want to understand childhood development, we must clearly distinguish between the body that a person is wearing, a body that has gone through second dentition, and a body worn by a child who has not yet had his second dentition. The particularly striking examples we have been given are going on all the time. The body is renewed year after year. We are all the time shedding things to the outside from our body. There is a centrifugal stream going out all the time, shedding the body. As a result, the body is indeed fully renewed every seven or eight years. Now, you see, this renewal is particularly important around the time of second dentition, in about the seventh year. Why? Well, the body worn by the individual from birth to second dentition is really just a model which we accept from outside, from our parents. It holds the hereditary powers that have been developed in the child's forebears. We shed this body at this time, over the first seven years. And what then? A completely new body develops. Anything there is to human beings after second dentition is no longer developed by hereditary powers, 
but solely out of the descending sphere of spirit and soul. So that in terms of substance, human beings have their inherited body only until second dentition, building up a new one based on their individual nature as they shed the old one. We really only have a body of our own from the time of second dentition. But the way this happens is that the inherited body is used as a model, and depending on whether the life in spirit and soul is strong or weak, this element of spirit and soul will find it easier to proceed in a more individual way against the inherited configuration, or it will be subject to the inherited configuration and has to give the second body a form which, like the first body, derives from the parents. The things usually said in genetics are utter nonsense. In general, people simply let the laws of growth up to the second dentition, continue on in later life. But in reality, heredity, as people see it, does not go beyond second dentition. After this, the individual spirit takes over and creates the second body. Especially with children, we must distinguish between the inherited body and the things that show themselves in the individual body as a consequence of the inherited body. The individual body evolves gradually, and it is only this which we may call the genuinely individual body of a person. And you see now, between the seventh and fourteenth year, we see the hardest work being done of which the individual spirit is capable. It will either overcome the powers of heredity as the individual goes through the process of second dentition and shows that he has become free of the hereditary powers, or, and we can see this very clearly, and being teachers must take note of it, the individual spirit is wholly subjected to the hereditary powers, to the principles in the model. In that case, similarity to the parents due to heredity will persist beyond the seventh year. It is the individual spirit which is responsible for this, not the powers of heredity. When, as a painter, I am given something to copy, and I make tremendous changes in it, I cannot really say that the person who has given me the work to copy has produced my painting. And in exactly the same way, we cannot say that we have inherited the characteristics we have from our seventh year onward. This is something you must firmly have in mind, knowing how strong the individual spirit is in the one case or the other. Between the seventh and fourteenth years, human beings go through a process of growth and development that will, as much as possible, reflect the individual spirit which the human being has brought down with him. As a result, human beings are relatively self-contained and separate from the outside world during this period. This is indeed the time when, which provides opportunity to reflect on the marvelous unfolding of individual powers. If human beings were to continue in this way, entering into later life with this development only, they would be dreadfully unresponsive to the world around them. But they are already developing their third body around this time, which will be in evidence when they reach sexual maturity. This too is developed with reference to the forces in the earthly environment. The relationship between the sexes is not the whole of it, it is merely because we take a materialistic view of things that it is given undue emphasis. 
in reality all relationships to the outside world that show themselves at sexual maturity are of the same kind. Because of this we should speak of, in quotes, earth maturity rather than sexual maturity. And under this heading put maturity of the senses, of breathing with sexual maturity, a subsection. That is the real situation. An individual reaches earth maturity, takes in the foreign element and gains the ability to be no longer unresponsive to the surrounding world. He is able to gain impressions of that world. Before, he was not impressed by the other gender, nor by the rest of the environment. So human beings are then developing their third body, and this is effective until the early twenties. The principle which came down from the spiritual world had come to an end with second dentition. It had its effect for the first seven years up to second dentition and up to the twentieth year. It configured itself in the organs which then existed and has made the human being mature individually and for earth. Now if an anomaly develops in the inner life and is reflected according to the structure of the organs, an anomaly which is conditional for the whole period of development, then there truly is a mental anomaly. But if an anomaly develops in the liver or some other organ once the individual has passed his twenty-first year, then this organ has reached a level of independence and detachment where the sole aspect of the will can maintain itself independent of this. This will be all the less the case the further we go back in a child's age. In adults where the organs do already have a particular trend, the inner life will be relatively independent, and a disease affecting an organ will not have such a powerful effect on the inner life. It may then be treated as a disease affecting one or more organs. In children, everything still influences everything else. A sick organ still influences the psyche, has a real effect. You see, present-day diseases, usually diagnosed using present-day pathology, are the coarser kinds of illness. The more subtle forms are not really open to histology, being in the fluid part that exists in an organ such as the liver, for instance, in the flow or even the movement of gases in the liver. The warmth that an organ has is also particularly important for the inner life. In the case of a child, if there is a defect in the will, we must above all ask which organ, which anomaly in an organ, which disease of an organ relates to this defect in the will? That is the more important question. A defect in thinking is not of such enormous importance. Most defects are really in the will. Even if you have a defect in thinking, you must consider carefully in how far the defect in thinking is one in the will. For if you think too fast or too slowly, the thoughts may be perfectly correct. It is merely that the will which is involved in the ordering of thoughts has a defect. You have to see to what degree the will is involved. You can really only speak of a defect in thinking when thoughts show deformation, independent of the will, hallucinations. These are wholly in the unconscious when it comes to the attitude to the outside world. In that case, the images that people have are irregular themselves.
Or we have something like compulsive ideas, and the fact that they are compulsive lifts them out of the will. But this is above all what needs our attention. If we have a defect in the will or a defect in thinking, the defects in thinking usually do already belong to the sphere of treatment per se. With defects in the will, we generally have to do something in our educating of children whose development is incomplete. But consider now how the whole essential nature of a person plays into their development. You can get a feeling for this from the things said about this development of a human being. Let us just take the first seven years of life. Hereditary defects may be present, and this has mainly to do with genetics. But we should not look on hereditary defects in the horrific way in which it is done in modern science. We have them not by chance, but as a karmic necessity. We chose the body which genetically has defects, though this is because we lack knowledge when in the spiritual world. So, if there are defective hereditary powers, the knowledge of the human organization was lacking prior to conception. The point is, we must get to know the human organism very exactly before we descend to earth. Otherwise, we can't properly enter into it in the first seven years and are unable to transform it properly. The knowledge we gain between death and rebirth with regard to the internal organization, is something beyond all measure compared to the little bit of knowledge that we gain from outside in physiology or histology today. That is really nothing. But the knowledge we have there, which then goes down into the body and is forgotten because it has gone down, does not turn to the outside world through the senses. This knowledge is something immeasurably great, but it suffers harm if we do not develop an interest in our surroundings in a life on earth or have been prevented from doing so. Think of a period of civilization where people are locked up in rooms from morning till night so that they cannot take an interest in the outside world. What is the effect of such a civilization? It would shut human insight off from the outside world. And when someone goes through death in this shut-off state, and brings little by way of precondition with him into the spiritual world, to get to know, take in the human organism in that spiritual world, which contains everything, such an individual will descend to earth with less knowledge than another who has developed an open eye, EYE, for the world around him. The other secret is this. You move through the world. Now you think that as you do this, for one day, for instance, you think it is something minor. For our ordinary thinking, it is indeed something minor, but it is not a minor thing for the element which in ordinary conscious awareness is the subconscious. For if you move about in the world for just one day and look at it more carefully, that will already be the precondition for insight into the inner human being. Outside world in life on earth is spiritual inner world, in life beyond this earth. And we are going to talk about what our civilization does to us and why there are, therefore, in quotes, inferior children. 
People who are shut off from the world today will all come down to earth in ignorance of the human organism one day, and they will choose ancestors for themselves who would otherwise remain infertile. The very people who would provide poor quality bodies will then be chosen, whilst those who would otherwise provide good bodies remain sterile. It really depends on the whole development of an age, how a generation is made up again as it descends. And when we look at a child, we must see what lives in that child from the previous life on earth. We have to understand why the child chooses organs which, according to the hereditary powers, are morbid. Why the child on his part finds his way into this body because his individual nature is not completely developed. Imagine the possibilities that are available to the child up to second dentition exactly because the element which is descending is not always wholly adequate to what is there already. A possibility is given, for instance, for a child to have a good model which has a well-developed liver. But with the individual unable to understand what exists in there, it will be imperfectly recreated in the second period in life, and you then get a truly significant defect in the will. It is exactly when the example comes true and the liver is incompletely recreated according to the model that you get a defect in the will, and this is evident in that the child has the will but does not move on to implement that will. The doing remains a thought. The child will also immediately start to want something else once he has started and the doing is terminated. The crux of the matter is that the liver is not merely the human organ that is described in modern physiology. It is, in the most eminent sense, the organ that gives people the courage to implement an action they have thought of. So, if it happens that I am organized in such a way as a human being that a tram is about to move off and I know I am supposed to go to Basel, there are such people, then I am there already in my mind, but at the last moment I cannot get on. Something wants to hold me back. I do not get to the point of getting on. You see, something like this sometimes shows itself in a strange way if the will gets blocked. But when such a thing happens, there is always a subtle defect in the liver. The liver always mediates the implementation of ideas that are intentions, making them into actions which the limbs perform. Every organ exists in order to mediate something or other. You see, I was told of a young man who actually had this condition, so that when he was near a tram he would suddenly stop and not get on. No one knew why he did not get on. He himself did not know why. He just stood there. The will was at a standstill. What was going on there? A most complicated business. The father of that young man was a philosopher who had categorized the powers of the soul in a most peculiar way the forming of ideas, judgment, and the powers of sympathy and antipathy. He did not count the will among the powers of soul. The will was excluded from the list of the soul's powers. He would never list the will when listing the powers of soul. He did not want to be honest, however. 
He only wanted to refer to anything that came to conscious awareness. He had progressed so far that it had become part of his nature to have no idea of the will. This man had a son at a comparatively late age. By eternally not thinking the will, this man had implanted in his liver the tendency not to implement subjective intentions and to make them actions. This then became a morbid condition in the son. And you can see why the son's individual spirit had chosen exactly this father, because it did not know what to do with the inner organization of the liver. So the individual spirit had chosen a constitution for him where it did not have to concern itself with the liver, for the liver lacked this function which the son had not brought down with him. So you see how we must also look into karma in a quite peculiar way if we want to understand the child. This is what I wanted to say today, and we'll continue at the same time tomorrow. The end of Lecture 1